0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Molly Scudder, who's the author of Beyond Empathy and Inclusion, The Challenge of Listening in Democratic Deliberation. This book was published in, by Oxford University Press in 2020, and this is a really useful examination of how to listen and think about listening in terms of democratic deliberation, particularly with regard to voices with which we disagree. Um, But I'm going to let Molly tell us all about that as we talk about her excellent book, Beyond Empathy and Inclusion. First, I'd like to welcome Molly Scudder to the podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hello, Molly.
0: Hi, Lily. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's my Um, pleasure.
0: Yeah, great. <laughs> so yeah, the uh, about myself, I am an assistant professor at Purdue University, and I specialize in political theory. Um, I did my PhD at the University of Virginia, and before that, I was an undergraduate at Santa Clara University in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. Um, and the way I got into this topic of listening and really the limits of empathy and inclusion in democratic deliberation was through my um, graduate, my PhD, my dissertation work was on the role of art in politics. And a lot of the literature that I was reading was trying to um, focus, was focusing on how art um, and literature specifically can really enhance empathy among citizens uh, and that we can sort of put ourselves in Uh, the place of someone else, transport ourselves to a different time, a different place, a different identity, even when we are reading uh, certain works of literature, and that this can have an expansive effect on our imagination and our willingness to sort of engage and to think about people differently situated than ourselves. And I actually set out to write a dissertation on the importance of empathy um, in democratic deliberation and sort of the limits of an overly rational, um, sort of overly narrow understanding of reason and rationality. And then as I was reading some of these accounts, I thought, well, maybe there are some um, limits to this sort of understanding of empathy and that there's actually a kind of space that's created when we recognize how we're different from someone else, a space for a conversation to actually occur. So my dissertation was really on um, that sort of kernel of the limits of empathy, but from the perspective of art and politics and aesthetic expression. And then as I worked on revising this project and turning it into the book that it is now, uh, I was really focusing more generally on democratic deliberation and not, not specifically um, aesthetic expression. And so there I was really thinking about um you know, I went to graduate school during the Occupy Wall Street movement and the beginning of Black Lives Matter movement. And I really started thinking about the insufficiency of inclusion, that groups were organizing, groups were speaking. Um, You know, you could think of discourse as being more inclusive than maybe it had been, you know, ever. Uh, People people speaking out and speaking up, but realizing that so much of our gains in democracy depended on uh, really dominant mag- segments of society being willing to listen and um, take on these um, accounts and demands that people were making. So I began then to see what I call the insufficiency of inclusion, um, and that you know we needed we needed people to be willing to listen. So I began focusing on the um, the sort of disposition and. That we need citizens, especially majority citizens who who might uh, whose opinions might be sort of dominant in society. How do we get those people to really listen to voices that are newly included or that they hadn't encountered before? Um, And so, yeah, that was that was sort of the beginning of that. And then again, sort of thinking is empathy a good way to promote that kind of listening? And and there was there were some accounts in deliberative democratic theory that that thought that sort of argued, oh, empathy is again, the way to get people to listen. And I, and I saw it as a way to, you know, at least potentially it can short circuit um, conversation, because if you put yourself in someone else's shoes and you think you understand where they're coming from, you don't necessarily have to do the hard work of listening to what they actually have to say. And then if you do listen and it sort of backfires or goes against what you thought, you might be even more, um, you might be, Less likely to continue that conversation, so that that was sort of um, where I came. It's sort of a big evolution from uh, thinking empathy was maybe where it was at, and then uh, recognizing some pathologies of empathy as a democratic good.
1: And and so what you've just explained also is a little bit of a deconstruction of your dissertation to reconstruct the the book, which is really about moving beyond these concepts of empathy and inclusion that have also been quite dominant in democratic theory in the last couple of decades to sort of open up another space for democratic deliberation. At least that seems to be what I was taking away from reading the book. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you, one of the first terms that you use is fair consideration. Um, and you also, um, make use of a term in that context of uptake. Um, and I was wondering if you can explain a little bit about how this idea of fair consideration and or uptake kind of fit into, um, the, the role of listening and and that mm-hmm. that makes listening in particular super important when thinking about democratic deliberation.
0: Yeah. So uptake or fair consideration, I use those terms sort of interchangeably. Is um, what we need to happen after inclusion, and I think of uptake as being sort of this middle ground between mere inclusion letting somebody speak and then actual influence on the back end. So getting, you know, seeing your, your pref your preferred outcome um, borne out in, in reality. And so that's, it's, it's a really difficult outcome to observe. Uh, It's, I would argue it's pretty, it's actually maybe impossible to know whether uptake has been achieved, but it really is, what I argue legitimacy hinges on. So, um, you know, we have to do more than just letting somebody speak, and we have intuitions about this, right? If I was just reading the newspaper while you were speaking, we wouldn't think that was very meaningful. Um, just letting somebody speak doesn't doesn't um, confer legitimacy on an outcome. Uh, I use the example of a trial for this uh, sometimes, right? That there's that there's um, we expect to, to be heard and not just be able to speak into the, the, the abyss, into nothingness. But then at the same time, we know that people are not in a democracy. We're not entitled to getting our way. Um, and so looking for actual influence as a marker of legitimacy is problematic because I can listen to you and disagree with you. I can listen to you and think that what you're saying is wrong or or. The, the wrong approach for us to take in solving a problem, let's say. So uptake is, is what I argue, um, or this fair consideration is what legitimacy hinges on. It's how we know someone's been included in a meaningful way. And I argue that listening is central to uptake. Um, listening also doesn't really get, doesn't guarantee uptake. I say, I think the way I put it in the book is that listening happens on the way to uptake so you cannot get uptake without listening um, but but uptake can also the, the reason i really sort of was drawn to this idea of uptake is that if we focus on uptake as the desired outcome of deliberation and not influence or inclusion we also get at these other barriers to deliberation and democratic deliberation which is um, misunderstanding or a lack of understanding or the limits of understanding or just very different identities and very different experiences that might prevent me from understanding where you're coming from or what you're saying. And these obstacles get in the way of uptake. They get in the way of, of let's say, um, if I'm trying to explain some experience I've had or some some reality of mine and no one else understands it. Uh, I use the example of sexual harassment in the 70s. Right, Women had to actually come up with language to to explain this experience and and people could be really well intentioned and really trying and generous but if they don't know if they don't if they can't understand what this person's trying to express then that person is not getting a fair hearing now there's other you know they're not being really included now there's other times when someone isn't being generous and they aren't, you know, they're, they're willfully misunderstanding what someone's saying, or they're mischaracterizing it, or they're just not even giving it a chance. They're just sort of, they're, they're solving for X, solving for their preferred outcome and, and not really taking into account. That's also an obstacle to uptake. But what I'm trying to do in this book is show how there are these two, or, or there's more than two, but there's such a wide variety of reasons why uptake can fail from the sort of democratically nefarious ones where, you know, people are really being exclusionary and let's say it could come from a bias or biases or racism or sexism or some sort of um, problematic reason why you're discounting someone. But then there's also these other obstacles that, that really we shouldn't be trying to overcome through empathy or through some sort of universal understanding, but rather we need to just sit with them and recognize them and they, but they're also problematic for the goals of de- democratic deliberation. They're problematic for legitimacy. But this is sort of a reality of a large, diverse polity that we do, we have no choice but to accept these limits. And this is where I see myself as trying to offer a deliberative democratic theory that's more sensitive to the concerns of agonistic theorists who think that Uh, who are sort of suspicious of deliberative Democrats for trying to overcome differences and overcome disagreement for the sake of achieving some consensus. I'm recognizing consensus isn't possible. It's not always desirable, right? Aiming for consensus can sort of beat down dissenting voices that we need to hear. And I argue that empathy can kind of play that role also. But we still need to recognize these limits of understanding for what they are, and they really can underman, undermine uptake. So listening cannot, nothing can guarantee uptake or fair consideration because of these deep differences and disagreement that can exist in a large plural, pluralistic society. And that's kind of why I love uptake for that middle ground. Um, it's it's a goal, but it's a goal we're not going to pursue at all costs, including making people speak in a certain um, register or with a certain set of references that we deem, you know, appropriate.
1: And, and what, one of the points that I was finding throughout reading your book is that you're making a, a fairly nuanced argument here in terms of, um, sort of achieving democracy among in, in the midst of dissent, um, and, and I thought this was really interesting because you're asking for sort of a reconsideration of how we listen, um, and, and what that role is in, in a deliberative democracy, but you're also using the idea of dissensus. Um, and I think I said that correctly, cause it's the yeah. opposite of consensus, I think,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and, and that it's, it's necessary to understand that a democracy is not that everybody has the same opinion, as, as you say, I think early on in the book, that it's, it's really about the fair um, opportunity to influence. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how that fair opportunity to influence and dissensus are really at the heart of this idea of sort of listening.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so as I was mentioning at the beginning of the motivation behind the book and how I was really interested in Occupy Wall Street and the Black Lives Matter movement and these groups of uh, marginalized people or people who were making demands publicly on a majority of citizens or dominant segments, That was the early part of the project, what I was, what was sort of happening and where my attention was. And then as I was working on the project further, uh, we saw the white, the rise of white supremacy. I went to graduate school in University of Virginia. I was gone um, during the Unite the Right rally um, in, uh, I guess that was 2016 um, or 2017. 2017. 2017. Yeah. So, and, and I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I don't want, I don't want my arguments for listening to, you know, what I was really being pushed to understand what does it mean for dangerous undemocratic segments of society? Do we really have to listen to white, you know, to Nazis? That's, that's sort of the question um, that I think actually has an easier answer than um, other groups that may be more, um, uh, you know, nuanced or, you know, less, less obviously hate groups. Um, And so, this this idea that I have, the, the sort of puzzle or the problem that I'm trying to think through is how do we achieve democracy amid dissensus? How do we, you know, if democracy is when the people rule, how do we have democracy if there is no united people? Um, now, does that mean we have to sort of achieve some consensus at all costs and, and sort of decide what is public minded, what is the public minded um, position: What is the what is in the public good, or can we accept some sort of um, dissensus, division, disagreement as a ever present part of democracy, and still, or ever present part of politics, and still aim for something that we might call legitimate? So that um, that's that is, I think you pinpointed the sort of a tr- the struggle of the book is thinking about this this idea of uptake in in things that I think personally could enhance democracy and in voices that I think really do damage or or even very self-consciously and intentionally are trying to undo democracy and undo inclusion and undo equality. Um, And so this is where I think listening and uptake really offers this middle ground in that um, we we have to listen to people and and i argue right you have to listen to people even to know whether what they're saying is reprehensible and hate and hate speech and if you can't say i don't need to listen to you and um, if you've done that then you've already probably listened to them enough to say that i recognize what you're saying to be you know white supremacy and something that I reject on these grounds um and so so listening I, I develop what I call listening act theory which is comparable to Austin's speech act theory about how we act in speaking. And I argue that we act in listening, that in listening to someone else, we recognize them as a democratic equal, as a peer, as somebody who's entitled to, to help shape our collective laws and you know our future together. So um, in listening to somebody, that Act in and of itself, regardless of what happens after it, regardless of whether agreement is achieved or not. We um, we move our deliberation in the direction of democracy. So I call it listening toward democracy. That in listening to somebody, we move that um, decision making process in the direction of greater democracy, even if there isn't a um, united people, even if there isn't one general will. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I'm. Thinking about you know, um, Rousseau says we're born free everywhere in chains. The only way to make these chains legitimate is to is to really uh, have a say in them, right? That we achieve autonomy when we obey only those laws we've prescribed for ourselves. And then Habermas sort of reinterprets that, saying um, we need to be both the authors and the addressees of the laws. So that that is how we achieve freedom and autonomy that's sort of the key to legitimacy and so what i'm thinking through is how listening is really crucial to that authorship of the laws that that we can see ourselves as authors of the laws so long as we had the we were included but also were heard and people fairly considered what we had to say and so even if we don't see our personal will reflected in the law if we were heard in listening, in, in being heard, we we sort of are um, participating in that authorship.
1: And, and I wanted to ask you to uh, elaborate just a bit on the listening towards democracy, which I thought was a really interesting term and also a really interesting way to think about this, what you also talk about as performative democratic listening. Mm-hmm. Um, And can you explain a bit more about this sort of act of listening towards democracy?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so just going back, I think it's helpful to think about, um, speech act theory as the model here, but so Austin introduced a theory of speech acts to explain how we act in speaking. And he also uses the idea of uptake slightly differently than what I'm saying, but there is a sort of connection here that I think weaves through it. But um, so Austin says there's a locutionary act or to say something, an illocutionary act, or to act in saying something, and there's a perlocutionary act, or to bring about something through acting in saying something. So um, the illocutionary act to say something, if you ask me what time it is and I say it's 10 a.m., then I've communicated something to you, the emphasis on what that, the substance of that speech. Um, If I say, put your pens down, the exam is over, as the instructor, I've acted in saying something, I have uttered an illocutionary performative, and I have brought about the end of the exam. In speaking, I have ended the exam, and I can only do that, you know, in my role as instructor. Then the perlocutionary effect is what is brought about through acting and saying something, and this may vary. So if I say the exam is over and the students put their pencils down others may not. These are the perlocutionary effects or outcomes of the speech act. But it's for Austin, it's important to, and and Habermas uses um, this structure also. And it's important to sort of see these different elements of a speech act. And in the book, I develop this corresponding listening act theory. And so the auditory act is to listen to something. And I argue that inclusion really captures this auditory act, that when we listen to somebody, we hear that thing that they are saying. And if we don't listen to them, we miss that thing. We miss that perspective. Um, And so the auditory act really relates to whether someone's been included or not. Then if we skip to the per auditory act or something that's brought about through acting and listening to something, that could be agreement. It could be disagreement. It could be um, learning. It could be understanding. These are all outcomes of listening. It could be demobilization, right? So Diana Mutz talks about how um, cr- hearing cross-cutting opinions in our everyday lives may lead to greater demobilization among citizens. So this, these are all outcomes of listening. And then what I'm trying to do here in the dem- performative democratic listening or listening toward democracy is to identify that middle piece that I think has been... Um, missed in our understandings of listening and political theory, and that's the ill auditory act or how we act in listening to something. And this is really distinct from that first piece of the the what that we hear when we listen, the particular content of someone's speech, but then also what's brought about. So um, the ill auditory act or performative listening occurs even if we don't, you know, regardless of what those outcomes are, it is a, it is a goal in and of itself. Um, and so this is how we act in listening. Um, and so I use the example of a hearing in a trial. Uh, and and so the idea here is that in listening to the accused, whatever the outcome of the trial, the judge or jury infuses that process with legitimacy that it previously lacked or that it would lack, with that it would lack without it. And so in a political context, um, the ill auditory act or listening toward, a demo- toward democracy, it's how we recognize the moral equality of voice of our neighbors and our fellow citizens and other people who have a claim to our attention. Um, so we perform here a willingness or a desire to hear what they have to say. And in doing this, uh, we acknowledge they have a rightful say in decisions that, that, we should, that our opinion ought to be shaped in some way By listening to them. Again, not 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 saying exactly how, but just that that we now understand what they had to say and that we've taken that into account. And so um, I argue that the this power of the Ill Auditory Listening Act or Performative Democratic Listening um, comes from the attitude of the listener, the disposition of the listener whether they are listening with the right disposition or whether they're listening just to defeat that person or to rebut that person's position, right. That there's, that this really depends on that attitude um, of the person who is listening.
1: And so the, the sort of listening towards democracy is also to some degree, recognizing the other person even if you are, you know, desperately in disagreement with them, as having the right to articulate their own position as a citizen, a fellow citizen. Um, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It is also about a kind of equality um, that we have the right to make our, an articulated argument, even if the person listening to us does not agree with it. It's not appropriate to shut it out. Um, and 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 so what a lot of we've been talking about here is how citizens should be listening to one another. But you also note in the book that there's a whole nother track of of listeners um, and participants in democracy. And those are the folks that we generally elect to make our laws um, and that you connect the sort of <clears throat> listening by the citizens and the um, also the rhetorical engagement by the citizens with what our elected representatives are doing. Can you explain a little bit about these two tracks within yeah. deliberative democracy?
0: Yeah. So the two tracks, um, when we think about the two tracks of of. Um, a democratic system, we, I'm often reminded of Habermas who, who has sort of an, an explicitly two-track model of uh, legitimacy where you have the first track is the informal public conversations that occur in informal public spheres um, by everyday people talking to each other um, in their homes, at school, at work, in all manner of informal conversations. These are diffuse informal conversations. And this is really a lot of what I focus on the, the where listening must occur and often doesn't or doesn't occur broadly. Um, then for Habermas, it's really crucial and, and deliberative systems more generally, it's really crucial that the public opinion that is formed, that kind of, you could think of it as bubbling up from this, these diffuse conversations in the public sphere, well, it's really important that those then help shape and and transform and get what he he calls transmission, that they're transmitted and received by the second track, which is the formal um, deliberation that occurs in decision-making bodies, so Congress in the U.S. or parliaments, um, and that these... Um, there's this sort of cycle that needs to occur between. Um, uh, there needs to be over or sort of a relationship connection between these two tracks, and and the so democracy in a deliberative system requires both that this informal conversations must be inc- broad and inclusive and democratic, and listening has to occur. But then that's not good enough. We also need to make sure that those public opinions. Are transferred to formal decision-making um, empowered spaces, so that again the the people see themselves as the authors of the law. So there can be a disconnect in any number of places that can undermine the legitimacy of a democratic system. One would be, um, you know, if there's not listening or inclusive listening at that the in the public sphere among citizens, but also if the representatives, those people empowered to make formal decisions, aren't taking into account what's happening in the public sphere. And this is actually um, something I'm working on in another paper with some with some co-authors from the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance, Celine um, Ercon and Carrie McCallum. And we talk about how a system listens. So, what does it mean for those members of Congress to listen to the voices of the public sphere, because I I would argue based on my work here that with the idea of uptake, um, representatives aren't, don't have to do exactly what the people say either. There's, um, and Habermas talks about this, right. That there's a, um, we need the Habermas is concerned about the, raw public opinion being transferred directly into laws. There needs to be, he talks about sluices and he uses a lot of water metaphors and that they need to sort of go through um, a a sort of processing just as I talk about citizens or the individual people need to be processing what people are saying and not just sort of directly uh, ignoring or engaging, you know, uh, adopting someone else's point of view. Um, And so this is, yeah, there needs to be listening both within each of those tracks and between those tracks. Uh, And that's something I I am working on now, also thinking more explicitly about how that listening happens between those tracks. i talk a little bit about it in the book too. Um, But that's something that I've been, I've been thinking about a little bit more lately.
1: And certainly when we hear these conversations about gerrymandered, districts um and you know and and individuals who win senate seats say by 70 percent that there's some some suggestion that they don't have to listen to half of the (laughs) folks in their district or their state because they don't need their votes to win the seat itself um which again sort of seems to be disconnecting them from democratic deliberation in a lot of ways
0: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and i think if i like in the book i talk about how individual people um you know uptake and listening depends so much on the disposition of the listener but as you pointed out when we're talking about formal politics a lot of it has to do with institutional structures and incentives and um you know it's not enough for they, they i um Representatives can often take a sort of listening wager that they don't have to, that, they, that they're that they better off not listening to this um, group of people or to this group of constituents because, um, you know, they're not going to pay any price electorally for ignoring them. So, yeah, I think that's a good point that in the um, formal empowered spaces where decisions are made, we need to think about institutions that can require. Would require listening. And that's maybe different than in the public sphere where we don't have institutional, there, it's, it's sort of diffuse informal um, conversations that don't have the opportunity to be institutionalized. That's, that's sort of the nature of them is that they are happen, happening in our everyday lives and without uh, a moderator there to say, oh, wait, that's not your turn. You need to listen to this person or you need to change the channel to get this other perspective that you're not getting from this outlet that you're listening to.
1: And and so that leads me to my obvious question in terms of our siloed lives, um, in terms of the information that we um, expose ourselves to um, and the people around whom we live, that we've made choices to live around people, generally speaking, according to census data and so forth we choose to live near people with people that we generally agree with, um, -hmm. in neighborhoods or areas or States. Um, and that this, this is a growing issue, obviously. So I'm going to ask you, um, how do you solve this problem?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. And, you know, personally, I, Often I joke that I troll myself, you know, I go on to new sites or, or blogs or comment sections and, and I'm, I, you know, I really get um, agitated sometimes. And I think, why am I doing this to myself? But and on a more serious note, um, so I, I recently read, I'll plug someone else's book, Anatana Soka's um, Deliberation Naturalized. And we actually engage in a critical dialogue that's coming out in Perspectives on Politics. And her book, uh, we're, we're, both of our books really look at that sort of informal deliberation. and um, And she makes the case for she would. She makes a more optimistic case that we're not as siloed as we think, and that if you if you look at our networks and um you know on Facebook, but also other networks that if you if you allow for certain degrees of separation, that we do encounter um, uh, different ideas um, more than we might think we do, but you know again. My my question is always coming back to listening. Are we listening to these people? Um, are we are we really allowing these opinions to enter into our perspective, um, into our into our perspective making? So I think um, I, in the book I talk about certain strategies we can we can use to promote a kind of listening across difference. Um, and I talk about the need to listen seriously, attentively, and humbly, but I, I think about how we might do that. And, and one kind of basic or, I don't know, a simple solution would be to talk in schools with children about, you know, um, decision collective decision-making processes and the importance of listening to other people and, and, and including them into your decision-making process, that That it's not, you know, we say everyone's entitled to an opinion, but in a democracy, we're really supposed to be taking into account other people's opinions. So um, whether that's something like having children, school children, choose a book, collect, you know, choose a book as a group, what they're going to read, as opposed to either choosing everyone's own book or having a teacher choose the book um, that the class is going to read to sort of have discussions and, and really showing that it's not just a majority vote. It's a conversation about what is, you know, why do people, some people want to read this book or that, that book and sort of simple giving collective decision-making um, a, a, more of a role and showing that autonomy, right, talking more um, robustly about what democracy means in the first place and that it's not majority rule, that, that there is a more robust and nuanced understanding of what democracy means that goes beyond majoritarian politics, because, you know, if I'm, you know, my freedom depends not just on my having my own minority rights to live my life as I want, but to really having a say in how we collectively are moving and shaping our future together. And so I think there are some opportunities for that in in schools. Um, but then also, I think uh, trying to promote an understanding that disagreement is okay and that you can have conversations with people you with whom you, you deeply disagree. I think a lot of times conversations are shut down because we're afraid that having a conversation with somebody will make it seem as if we're sympathetic to that argument. And that um, we don't want, you know, somebody might not want to be seen as um, giving airtime to a sexist person, right? That I don't want to... Um, signal to my colleagues, to my friends, to my family that this person is worthy of engagement. And I think that's sort of a dangerous, if we think about listening not as the outcome of reaching agreement, a lot of times, I mean, I, I highlight this in the book on grassroots listening organizations. If you read their, their mission statements, it's all about bridging divides, overcoming differences, listening to find some sort of common ground. And I'm over here saying no, no, no. That's not what. That's those sort of per auditory outcomes we can't guarantee from listening. It's just as likely to produce um, deep disagreement and and sort of misunderstanding and increased conflict. Right? Listening to people you deeply disagree with is not going to bridge a divide necessarily. And so I think we can enhance, improve listening, make people more willing to listen if we remind them that this isn't a matter of like walking away as friends with this person. This isn't a matter of trying to get in their head and feel what they're feeling. Like someone who you who has hatred for you, like you don't have to try to empathize with them. Um, but you might have to listen, right? And that if we sort of lower the space, that that could help um, people feel better about it. And I, yeah, there's some, personally, I have a high threshold for disagreement, right? So this is something that um, maybe a lot of academics do, you know, we, we just have careers of disagreeing with each other and, and, you know, criticizing people and and building on their work in a, in a critical way. Um, and that, that's sort of, and a lot of people don't, um, Emily Sidner has done some work showing that people's psychological, uh, attitudes towards disagreement have, have an impact on their political involvement. Um, so, and, and their willingness to deliberate. So I think if we also just remind people that disagreement is okay. And that that, again, going back to that, that bridging the agonistic camps with the deliberative camps, that deliberation does not depend on us walking away friends, starting out as friends, trying to empathize with somebody. It just requires listening um, for the sake of hearing what they have to say. But yeah, if we can, if we can, um, Teresa Bajon's work too on, Civility and what that really means, and it's not a matter of resolving disagreement or respecting even what someone else says. Um, you can you can walk away not respecting them. Um, I think those sorts of reminders can help promote better listening, and it's sort of counterintuitive, maybe, but um, but I think it could.
1: But it also it also sort of points to what you're saying as the role of listening is a piece. Of uh, sort of del- deliberation within a democracy as opposed to the either the goal itself um, or um, you know, sort of coming to an agreement with the person if you just don't agree with them um, mm-hmm. that the listening mm-hmm. is is the process as opposed to mm-hmm. necessarily the outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the outcome for me still, remains this sort of uptake, but realizing that you can listen seriously, attentively, humbly to what someone has to say and still struggle to understand where they're coming from. Um, certainly still disagree with them. Um, by separating out the ill auditory act from the, from the per auditory outcomes, I'm also able to say, you can respond by yelling over them. You can respond by insulting them. You can say, you know, um, I remember a reviewer one time was saying, what if you respond by saying only a racist would think that? Is that really um, listening? And it's like, well, yeah, you have to have listened to that in order to reply in in that sort of way. So um, yeah, by separating out what we want to observe as a result of listening from the act of listening itself, I'm trying to open up more space for a variety of responses and and sort of lower stakes. Again, like you're not listening to try to bridge a divide. Um, You're listening because you owe it to that person uh, because of the moral equality of their voice.
1: And, and so given the complexity of what you've written and how it sort of lands in the middle of like dialogues that we're having, um, in terms of listening to people with whom we disagree with and trying to encourage people with whom we disagree with to do something that they maybe don't want to do, like wear a mask. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you what you're working on now.
0: Yeah, so um, a few I've done a few things since the book that uh, I had a paper published in PRQ that was a listening quality index. So that looks at how we can, um, how we can observe this listening precisely because it's not outcome. It's not necessarily outcome based. So someone can remain, just someone can not reply and still have listened. I can shut out of, I can shut down from conversation precisely because I've listened to what you had to say and it offended me. Um, and so that I use a strategy of a lexical scale that says, you know, um, you know, somebody had, in order for a reply to really count for listening, the person should not have interrupted, right? So that, because you could see where, oh, we're just looking for a reply. Well, then I interrupt you. I haven't listened, right? I can reply without listening. So that's one of the things I'm kind of excited about is, is putting that, uh, a lot of this research and normative theory into, into thinking about what would be a a way to measure it empirically. Um, (laughs) Excuse me, I'm also working on a, a next book with Stephen White from the University of Virginia, and that one takes a step back from um, deliberation more generally and thinks, or deliberative democracy, um, specifically to think more generally about the moral foundations of democracy itself and, and what, what those are. And the book um, is called, the two, tentatively, called The Two Faces of Democracy Between Agonism and Deliberation. And again, that's a tentative title. But what we're thinking about is, um, again, as I mentioned in this book, I'm really motivated by being sensitive to the concerns of agonists, while also sort of trying to hold on to aspirations of legitimacy, um, that, that we should have conflict and accepting conflict and respect conflict and sort of give space for conflict, but also that we we have a we have no choice but to coordinate our action. We live communal lives connected to other people. We have to think about how to sort of reach better decisions, more legitimate decisions. And so um, with Stephen, we're thinking about how you know those two phases of democracy: the contest, the contestation, and conflict is is sort of a real part of democracy and the origins of democracy, founding of democracy, certainly, and the. And the maintenance and preservation, we have to fight to keep democracy, right? And to fight against and to stand up to those who threat who threaten our democracy. But then also this sort of collaborative aspect of democracy, of cooperation and, and sort of, um, uh, you know, compromise and consensus, right? This is also an important part of democracy. So how do we... Ha- what we're trying to do is think about these as two faces of the same concept and that you have to um, sort of, the key is knowing when we need to sort of show one face versus another. Um, And so we're working on that right now, which is exciting. Um, And we have a contract from Oxford for that book, which is about half written at the moment. So we are, we are busy working on, on that next project.
1: Well, I look forward to that book and I invite you and Steven to come on the podcast and talk to me about it when it comes out. That would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah it would. So I want to thank um, Molly Scudder for talking to me today about her fascinating book, Beyond Empathy and Inclusion, The Challenge of Listening in Democratic Deliberation. This was published by Oxford University Press in 2020 and one can purchase it at the Oxford University Press website um, and other places where you purchase books. Thank you, Molly, so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Lily.